to describe Mark Titchener as an artist feels overly simplistic. Perhaps more accurately, you could imagine the shifting visages from Richard Linklater's adaptation of Philip K. Dick's A Scanner Darkly, in which bodies shift and morph into new forms, refusing to yield easy identification or categorization. Mark is a visual artist. He's also a musician and a music lover, and a writer. Perhaps best, a mirror for society or a thinker and a maker of things. Working in the art world, I've often confronted the frequently accurate character portrait of the artist as someone who is self-obsessed and driven by ego, but Mark is definitely not that kind of artist. I've had the pleasure of becoming his friend over the past few years, and can perhaps best describe Mark as the antithesis of the artist's ego, recognizing, of course, that we all struggle against the seductive power of the ego. His work often deals with the language of empowerment or propaganda, inviting us to challenge ourselves, media, culture, and the complex relationship between these things. I sat down with Mark to talk about identity and the self. What follows is a portion of that conversation. start is hearing how you think about your work in relationship to the individual. I guess it gets interesting when you look at practice historically and you see how different concerns bring themselves out and you have periods there'd be a kind of like intensity of research or practice in a certain area and then another aspect will drop off and that is kind of like intertwined and within that what's happening is that your perceptual interests change. So yourself as an individual, even through just working, is something that's fluid and changes. And that's sort of one half of it. And then there's the conscious side of it, which is actually thinking like how, when I'm involved in making things which are solid, either as objects or solid as in complete structures as ideas, I'm quite interested in the deceit of the idea of the individual as like this solid unit. And those little points, I try to sort of think of ways that, they're all like little lies really, I suppose. Even the act of making an affirmative or a negative statement, that kind of act of will of wishing the world to be a certain way, like even that just very basic expression, and it seems like that seems so ridiculous and, you know, silly, basically. I suppose quite often I'm engaged in doing that, but looking at it from the other point of view and like thinking about the, the, the ridiculousness of it, the idea of self-improvement, what, what does that mean? And especially when it's so prescribed as part of a, you know, then you introduce the cultural element to it, it's got a political element to it, so who's telling us that this is the way to be? So it's kind of a whole, I mean, the R.D. Lang book, not something I kind of was working with earlier this year, and I think it just as a title, even the idea of the kind of, the kind of knot of interpersonal and even your relationship with yourself, that kind of just whole bunch of stuff, it's very difficult to kind of unpick particular threads. So you maybe follow one a little way and then you end up at another knot and take a little diversion and it's kind of passage between these blockages, I suppose. I mean, do you think of the work as being a almost like a, a like a device to work through those knots? 
it's kind of like that, but it also is a knot. It's like one of the big knots in mm. my life is the idea of being an artist. On one hand, the ideal of being an artist, which I suppose is how one would hope the world to be, one which is based on a kind of moral investigation of oneself and one's surroundings and aspiring to improve. And then there's the other social role of being an artist, of economics, of all the stuff people get caught up in, like fame and celebrity and all, you know, which is just a consequence of how the world is, but it's really overpowering as well. So that's, yeah, that's kind of like another... One of the things that I'm really kind of fascinated by is the curation of identity and how through history there have been figures like Bob Dylan or Tom Waits or Joseph Boyce or these people who like construct these or, you know, Tracy Emin or whatever, who, who create mythologies around themselves and that how that operates, I guess, as a device. You know, I was reading this book recently called Ringo Levio by a guy called, well, a, a pseudonym called Emmett Grogan. Emmett Grogan was like the pseudonym, this guy who was organising the San Francisco Diggers, basically like a free food, free social care, free... You know, that was their programme. It was like, basically, just you don't need money, just everything's free. He wrote... His, this book is a kind of, like, constructed memoir, which is kind of largely untrue, I think, but based on his, his life. And he's really critical of people like Abby Hoffman and Jerry Rubin as being these, like, celebrity hippies. And he's flown to London to talk at a conference at the, the Roundhouse with all the kind of great and good... Allen Ginsberg and Marcuse and all these people and they're all there and he stands up and gives this speech and it's about like will and freedom and it's got this rhetoric about you know killing the pigs and people are standing up and cheering him and he's like he's like oh I just thought I should tell you that this speech that I've given is it's not a new speech it was written in 1937 and I don't know who exactly wrote it but it was given by this guy in Munich and like suddenly wow. if the penny drops because his whole basically he's saying you're listening to you're listening to the singer, not the song. When I started working with text, I was really interested in this de-authoring of text, so taking something from one context and placing it in another so that you could kind of remove that voice which gave it importance. The kind of cultural weight of saying, okay, well, this is, this is like a quote from Heidegger or something, as opposed to this is something which looks really similar, but actually it's a lyric from a country in Western soul. The reason for doing that really was to present this weightlessness of, A, trying to take out this mainly patriarchal authoritarian voice, but also how empty those phrases or language is without actually attaching any will to it. So they're kind of empty, not threats, but they're kind of empty kind of gestures or empty suggestions. They promise like a lot, but they actually deliver very little because mm. it comes back to the individual having to spend some time interpreting or working on themselves, which are all completely counterintuitive to the kind of world of infinite expanse, but like no depth. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what's, to me, quite interesting is they become these, they can become these catalysts. I mean, it's kind of, in, that, in the sense, they're almost offerings of, like, you know, mantras, what could become mantras. But, I mean, I remember this, like, striking image that it was, like, one of your text pieces, and it was in a shopping area. I mean, that, that experience of going to a shopping mall mm -hmm. and 
walking through it. I, I have this really hard internal battle between trying to humanize all those people around me and seeing them as drones. Mm. And you know, I feel really like, or feel really arrogant when I perceive of them as drones, you know, but I think it's, it's hard for me not to. And these things which, if you um, do spend time with them, can really be profound. I think that, I mean, part of the problem, I understand what you're saying, part of the reason that we all have to act like drones in those spaces because they're so unpleasant and mm. so dehumanised, it's just like you have to just keep your head down. Those spaces, that weird public shared space, but one which is completely contained by private companies and private rules and bombarded with all, and it's, you know, that, that space is really fascinating to me. Like how this shared experience we have is like completely coming from some multinational or admin's office and it's hardly even perceived like it blinks past you and you kind of and it's been a big thing I think for me to try and place the work in those environments where it's literally next to the thing which it's kind of born from but also it's that it's contrary to that's much more interesting than ever doing anything in like a gallery space in order to gain access to those spaces you have to basically start off by making work through negotiation so you have to get access and the more powerful that space is the more expensive it gets I guess I mean I did a project for Times Square which was on the video screen there which was like an amazingly kind of luxurious place to have work and then recently finally after years managed to get something like out on you know like on regular TV channel but those, you know, like it's, I guess TV's kind of at the top, you know, it's the hardest to access space and it comes down to, you know, money. It's mm-hmm. just like, you know, you, you need to have a huge amount of money to mm-hmm. be able to place your work. I don't know how that all changes because obviously the whole, that whole experience of something like you're talking about, like the shopping mall, I mean, in a way, you know, the high street experience is kind of a dying one where you have a you kind of like recognisable community aspect to to shop in but then even I don't know with the shopping mall whether even that eventually kind of changes into something quite different because of the kind of like you know just do everything online and yeah. that where is that space then that space of trying to subvert or add to or I think it becomes a city of coffee shops mm. where people browse the internet you know and, and order things but how do you place like an artwork on Amazon yeah. How does that work? You know, is that the next kind of challenge to be thinking about how to kind of insert your presence into these kind of online spaces of consumption? And I think that's the interesting thing is because it's like we're essentially one powerful definition of ourselves is to do with what we possess. I made a piece recently for a town in South End, called South End in on the coast of Essex, and I was really interested in the fact that, that an anagram of South End is Enslau. Nearby is the Salvation Army colony and they uh, one of the speeches that Booth kind of wrote was called the restoration of the submerged and I kind of liked this I, I got into this really like apocalyptic mindset I suppose and I made the piece which kind of stretched over the, the high street and on one side it said like when all you have done is forgotten and then on the other side it said when everything you possess is gone and I was trying to just I, I suppose people in a way took it as being this like apocalyptic kind of thing but it was actually supposed to be like this cleansing it's mm. like what if you don't? What if you weren't defined by what you can't have, right. or the things that you've done in the past which form you? You know, a lot of I suppose what people feel trapped by are kind of traumatic experiences, and just kind of dealing with that. You know, and what happens if those 
It was kind of tied Get released, yeah. Happens. yeah. Where are you? Are you nothing? Yeah. Because that's the other argument, isn't it? It's like, when you look back at some of those, like, experience with electroshock, so when you have, like, people literally, like, having their complete personality erased, you become this empty kind of slate, and then there's kind of nothing. I wonder about this though in the like in its relationship with technology and where social media seems to be going where it seems like it's combining a couple of these things that you're talking about on the one hand it's this endless consumption right this idea of like the endless scroll which um, you know I think maybe the first example was but does it float and then Tumblr now does it so you just scroll forever through content just content upon content upon content and then I think what that has is you know people kind of like like things or reblog things or whatever and it, it's this kind of cultural homogenization where every kind of everyone moves to this shared aesthetic and this shared kind of value set and what the individual actually becomes because of course everyone's aspiring to individuality and they want to express their individuality but that becomes something that's obviously exploited by advertising and all of that and so like what does what is the individual at the end of that? I, th- I wonder. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's a generational thing, but I really struggle with uh, social media, really. I mean, Twitter, I literally have no idea why anyone would do it. Like, unless, apart from for the reason of self-publicity, you know, it's just like another level of displacement from the reality that you're actually in. I'm sitting in a room with my friends, but I feel the need to tell some people who are not here that I'm sitting in my room, in a room with some friends. You know, just that kind of And like, who is that for the benefit of it? Yeah. But I mean, maybe it is. I think it's to do with need, isn't it? Really, then the and, and or, or the aspiration or identity being something which is to do with visibility. One defines oneself through one's presence. I 
and then it becomes actually comes right back to that idea of branding and stuff again. So the most the more the most popular, powerful brands are those which are most present in our lives. And you know, those top ten companies that have like a global kind of reach and I guess it's sort of what we've you know, it's just a cheesy example, but sometimes I've walked past the Apple store and there's been I don't know, whatever the new iPad is out and there's the queue and it's all, you know, like these people of a particular kind of age and look and you know, I'm stereotyping it a bit, but it feels like walking past some kind of religious zealot mm-hmm. who were kind of um, going to receive yeah. on high. And I guess those brands are so powerful and so compelling and attractive that actually the idea that we start to act as they do isn't that ludicrous. You know, we accept their logic as being correct. And if, if from the point of view of a brand, that's great. I mean, because you really are going to understand and desire those kind of products now because they're kind of creating the need for their own products. Mm-hmm. Like, Especially as Apple maneuvers itself so that every beca- everything becomes more self-referential uh, and, you know, they've gotten rid of the optical drives now, right? So you have to buy everything through the App Store or yeah. through iTunes. All your media consumption is controlled through their... I mean, I don't know. There's, there's probably, you know, like a 10-year plan or something, you know, with like... I don't know what's at the end of it. Golden Apple. Yeah, 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 uh, yeah. Happiness. Yeah, I was just, what's the apple called from, you know, Discordia, kind of like, you know, holding this golden apple with the... You know that story? No. It's like a Greek legend. I'm going to get this wrong. There's a wedding between, I think it's like one of the, a nymph and a, or maybe it's a, a mortal and a god, and like Discordia, this, this god of kind of like discord, as it were, is, isn't invited to the wedding. She's really angry. She gives... Uh, this golden apple and she says that she'll give this trophy to the most beautiful woman at the wedding which of course because it's a massive hoax the goddess of beauty is there but it would be really impolitic for the uh, kind of wife the bride to be not to get the apple so yeah I think this like relationship to the church or technology as church as well is quite powerful to me in the sense that again you know people create I think blogs and, and I wonder you know, on the one hand, they seem to me like a uh, like a vehicle for narcissism. Mm-hmm. But then on the other hand, they are these powerful, re- or can be these powerful resources, mm-hmm. right? Because um, there certainly is good stuff out there. There's just a lot of shit to wade through. I don't understand. This is the thing, though. I just don't understand how all of this factors into the, actually the time that people have. Like, it just seems... That's kind of the success of Twitter, isn't it? Because it's like engaging in reading, but like I've only got 10 seconds Mm -hmm. active, you know, even to read like a blog which takes 10 minutes and maybe to find, you know, a good blog which takes you more time. It's maybe time that people don't have, especially if they're trying to write a blog and Twitter at the same time. Yeah, but I think then that's that's when it becomes, um, you know, the person with... 30,000 followers who's following 10 people mm. and those 30,000 followers all they're doing is reblogging stuff from other people yeah. and like curating their own collection and therefore trying to get some kind of like vicarious cool or vicarious like intellectual gravitas or whatever it is that's an interesting point because I was thinking I suppose back to the kind of art world or there was a time probably 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more, where there was like a real kind of rise of the curator. The first superstar curators arrived and and, and also uh, artist curators started to appear. And I, I guess it's the same thing because they became incredibly powerful. 
by this act of placing other people's work using artists as ready-mades within mm. a structure and I guess that's you know you have the same thing within music you know the kind of rise of DJ culture not to say there's not like a skill within that or curation but it's a cultural shift that responds to a need for pace I think which is to kind of like I haven't got time to make or we don't have time to make and in fact the world is made up of so much stuff what we need to do is just kind of put it all together. I think an interesting then case potentially within that is, you know, girl talk. Yeah. So like these mashups are the maybe epitome of mashup culture in the sense that they're, you know, dozens of clips in one song, a total orgy of the chaos, I guess, of the world, right? I mean, it's like, yeah, it's a Twitter thing of like instant gratification. Here's two seconds of a, you know, a clip from a song. And maybe on the one hand, he's bragging about his musical knowledge or his iTunes library. But then on the other hand that does take a huge amount of time to make. Like, Unless there's some algorithm. <laughs> right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's... But actually, that's kind of where it's heading, isn't it? Or that's kind of mentally where it's heading is iTunes app, which will take two seconds. It's a script that you run mm. that picks out all picks the... Picks up beats or words. Yeah. Or... There was actually a project that I saw recently. I think it was done by someone at MIT, and it was... It takes a song, creates a infinite loop out of it. Uh, it runs it through this script and it decomposes the song into similar melodic fragments or whatever, and then it jumps between them. So when it gets to a point that's similar to another point, it will jump at random to one of those other points within a song, which is a yeah, really interesting idea. So basically you have the infinite song, play one song forever, um, and you get these really kind of interesting glitchy points, that, especially towards the end because it's not quite smoothed out yet. But I think you're totally right. That is, that is the direction. It's self-generative art. It's self-generative music. You know, the stuff that Brian Eno is doing with bloom and stuff which is yeah. like really cheesy maybe but yeah I saw the show with the, uh, Baltic that he did which was like kind of 100,000 artwork generative and it's just like there's 100,000 not very interesting like I don't know I mean all of these things I'm not necessarily super super critical of these things and saying oh this is bad you know it's more like kind of being an observer of what's happening uh, and maybe part of that's getting older and sort of not being so consumed by the new like I kind of need to get involved with this. But what I do think is interesting is what happens to our brains. What does that two-second mashup, what does hearing that do to us? The, our wiring, the way we connect. I mean, like children, the way that they absorb knowledge now will be very different from the way that their grandparents did. Mm. Like almost like, you know, the whole linearity of knowledge has just exploded three dimensions you know even the way that they interface they're not necessarily ever gonna need to pick up a pen and write a letter and that's not a bad thing that's just change Actually, when I'm writing now, I kind of like do this thing I write and I know it's kind of near enough, and then I'll spell check at the end. I don't kind of concentrate, and mm-hmm. that's that's you know, because we're writing speedily. You know, I don't know how much of the world's writing is done on kind of like smartphones and with predictive text now. Yes, yeah. kind of. Like and I, w- I do wonder though if that like does that matter, or does that you know, is it just using the tools of the day? 
Exactly. But then also, the, I mean, the worry to me is, like what we were talking about earlier, this endless consumption without processing. There's no time left to make the connections between the stuff that you're consuming and to form some understanding of the world or allow these things to become tools for self-reflection or self-betterment. That's because at the heart of it all is a big fucking hole. And it's like endlessly running around the edge of it. And actually what is missing in that middle bit is what you're saying, which is the self, like a real idea of the self or belief in whatever form that takes. So rather than, you know, just endlessly running away from the reality of you not being an immortal godlike being and just constantly being destroyed, you know, that's what it's really about, isn't it? It's about being entertained. That is kind of what, I mean, I suppose you, if you look at history, you have that move in, in, you know, recent times really from production to consumption as being the kind of primary role mm. that we would have. And then I don't know now whether we're heading into a new phase, which is like from being a consumer into being kind of, um, I guess like an audience member, being our role, primary role is to be in this state of constant entertainment, bliss of distraction. At all times, and yeah, accessible at your fingertips. Yeah, so that we never have to actually think about anything. Mm. And we don't have to confront the, you know, yeah, the reality of what we're doing with our lives on a daily basis, mm. the, the thing that we're participating within. I mean, I think people give themselves way too many excuses in terms of participating within that machine. And they deep down know that what they're doing is not the best use of their lives. But, you know, there's a mortgage to be repaid. There's, uh, you know, kids' tennis shoes to be bought. There's X number of things that are very real. But those things develop over time, right? And the decisions that you make lead you into these, uh, you know, rabbit holes or whatever you do. I think the problem as well is that maybe once you realize that that's kind of how things are, one of the reactions to that is I'm just going to remove myself from this. I'll just kind of stop. I'll go... You know, whether you physically go somewhere or whether you just become very, you know, like introverted or antisocial, I suppose. And actually, that's maybe not what you need <laughs> to be happening in culture for the people who are actually kind of concerned about their society and their culture. On an intellectual level, to feel that the best thing to do is to just remove oneself. The problem with it is, is I suppose it's it's all really hard work, and it's kind of work with which doesn't end. The problem with it is, is I suppose it's it's all really hard work, and it's work which doesn't end. And there's no roadmap. I think that's another big part. The the idea that the, you know the Bible offers you uh, a set of rules, and I think the more scared you are about the world the more you become focused on the specificity of those rules and the more you take them as very literal things. This is, this is a blueprint for how to live my life. And if my life sucks right now, that's okay because when I die, it's going to be amazing. Well, I think that's, the, that's not necessarily something which is exclusive to Christianity. I mean, that's something that you just find in all kinds of religion when people are dogmatic. You know, actually most religious texts are extremely kind of ambiguous and actually the poetry of those texts is where the, the complications in meaning is that's that's the bit that takes a long time to process you know it's not like something you get 
because life changes around that kind of framework and you realise that those points of reference you had are actually kind of false. So you start again. It's like kind of trying to build something out of water, isn't it? Or sand, where you have some, you know, a structure which is just moving all the time. And then you realise that the structure, the table you're building on it is kind of moving as well. So do you think, though, that when you get to that point that you can kind of release control to a certain extent? I had this, like, profound... I had this, like, kind of crushing depression in high school. You know, I'd gotten these grades and, you know, I had these friends and... I kind of just realized I can't, I can't do this. I've set these standards that I can't maintain. And it, you know, it was really, really, uh, it was really dark. And then my brother said to me, like, nothing, nothing's worth taking this seriously. Like, nothing, you know, you shouldn't take anything so seriously. And when I kind of released myself from the uh, standards that, you know, were self-implied or culturally implied or whatever, I just realized that, you know, over time that these things just come. When you release yourself to it, it just happens, you know, like that, that molding that you're talking about. If I think, you know, everyone is trying to like frantically mold something only to have it change. And I think if you just kind of release yourself, it, it you know, just, it takes form by itself almost. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the problem is, is it's not just a case of releasing yourself. Talking about knots earlier, I think the first line of knots is like, I can't have fun if they don't. And it's just, you know, like that whole... I oh, know, they're playing a game, they're playing a game of not playing a game, you know, and it's this whole kind of, you know, part of the reason that you felt that pressure was a societal or familiar, familial pressure, so it's kind of, when you say letting go of that pressure, it's, it's, it's a really complicated thing, because then it's like you're letting, you're realising that actually you're having to, some of the things that you're being told by the people that you love are, are not helping you. And I guess that's a, a realisation that for most people is very difficult to deal with and very kind of unsettling. When you release yourself to it, it just Like the snake that sheds its literal skin, the self is something we outgrow and must leave behind. By holding too tightly to the past, we deny ourselves growth. And while personal history demands a certain linear continuity, we must remember that we are not tied and nothing is fixed. A reminder from Mark Titchener. When all you have done is forgotten, when everything you possess is gone, the name of the music script I was searching for during the podcast was Paul Lemire's Infinite Jukebox, which was a product of the MIT Music Hack Day workshop. You can find more of Paul's work at musicmachinery.com. I'd like to thank Mark very much for sitting down to talk with me. It was enjoyable as always. Uh, and while physical objects, I think, are always best seen in the flesh, Mark's website is a great place to check out a large body of his work. He's got video up there and conversations and all kinds of things. So check it out. I'd like to thank you for listening. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Michael Lewis, and I'll catch you next time. <laughs>